Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. I see regularly that people are going hard in the paint, hot yoga, sauna, brutal cardio conditioning, or long events, and they aren't replacing any electrolytes. And what I mean that is salts. And I'm not just talking about good old-fashioned table salt. You probably could be deficient in a lot of your electrolytes if you're not actively replenishing, replenishing them. them. And thinking, yeah. thinking proactively about it. That's actually a big problem for me. If I go to hot yoga or do a really long sauna, even if it's like a long, low sauna, I often get a headache if I haven't been really mindful of my electrolytes. And not just while I'm in the sauna, I need to kind of go into the sauna like prehydrated. And so one of the ways that I do that so I avoid getting headache in hot yoga or taking long saunas is making sure that my electrolytes are on. And... Remember that Element actually is covering a whole host of electrolytes. It's not just salt and flavor. I mean, that would be good, right? Yeah, and it does taste good. It does taste good. But, uh, you know, one of the things that we see regularly is that athletes are working hard. We're not talking about if you're on keto. We're not talking about just, you know, hey, should you salt or not? But if you're sweating, you need to be thinking about electrolyte replacement. The triathletes, the runners have been on this for a long time. I think sometimes when more gym-based athletes are coming to some of these events. They're not, it's not on their mind to think about replacing these essential electrolytes. You will not recover. You will not feel good and you will not be able to go as hard tomorrow unless you're on it. So get on it. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. Watts don't lie. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are thrilled to welcome back the one and only Katie Bowman. Katie is a best-selling author, speaker, and a leader of the movement movement. Biomechanist Katie Bowman is changing the way we move and think about our need for movement. Bowman teaches movement globally and has written nine previous books on the importance of a diverse movement diet, including Move Your DNA, Dynamic Aging, and Grow Wild. Her latest book, Rethink Your Position, is a much-needed guide to how our bodies move, why we need to move, and the intentional steps anyone can take to feel, move, and even think better, one part at a time. You know, one of the things I loved about this conversation was that her book, Rethink Your Position, and our book, Built to Move, have so much in common in terms of the mission and goal to just have people really think about the basics. One of those things being practicing sitting on the floor and just thinking more about total daily movement. One of the things that I really like is that she uses a slightly different language. When she's talking about the things that your body should be able to do, she's almost thinking of them as vitamins, as essential aspects of a diet, a movement diet. And so we always talk about positions. And I think when we're thinking about creating vital signs, she's even going a step sort of further down the chain and saying, hey, let's make sure we're just even you know thinking about how the day-to-day -day movements are shaping us. And, I, and this is a great conversation. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we share in common with her as well is this idea that, you know, 
practice makes permanent. And often the movement that we're practicing in our life is no movement. That's right. She's like, what are you practicing? Right <laughs> yeah, now? What are you yeah, getting exactly, good at? What exactly. are you adapting to right now? Well, I like to adapt to ice cream and sitting on the couch, but it turns out I got to do some other, I need some movement strawberries in there as well. This is a wonderful conversation. Katie is a great thinker about all of the conditions of movement that sort of afflict the modern person. We think you're going to enjoy this convo. Hey, Katie. What's going on, Katie? How's it going, everyone? Hi. Welcome back. I know you just got back from a whirlwind trip in Central America. So welcome back. And I'm really excited to just chat away with you today. It's a nice place to land. It's very, very mellow. <laughs> we both have, all three of us have just launched books from different angles. I feel like aimed at the same thing. Totally. I've said many times that I really appreciate your brain, and I think you've done it again with your book, and I'm very, very pleased that it's out in the world. I feel like sometimes the three of us speak to slightly different populations from different corners. We're all aimed at the same center of the room, but we're definitely coming from different angles, and it's important that we use slightly different language, but the roots are the same, absolutely. This book is fantastic. And just uh, so our listeners know, your new book is called Rethink Your Position. And before we talk about the content, though, as I was preparing for this, I think maybe you have written 11 books. So I just want to start there because as people who have, you know, together put out, what, six books? Yeah. And we know what that means in terms of content creation and marketing and just overall, like, taxing your life <laughs> to put out books. How did you write and publish and market 11 books? I don't know. People ask me that question a lot. It's just what I do. You know, I, you were also probably managing a very large bricks and mortar and doing many other things. So this is just the main, the primary thing that I do. So it's just, I go to work, I write books and I've been working for a long time. Like it, it's just that. And I still want to give you some props though, because I mean, it doesn't matter if this is your full-time gig, writing books is difficult and you're sort of putting your ideas and yourself out there on the page, opening yourself up to criticism from the greater world. So seriously, props like 11 books is legit. Let me dovetail on that and just say, here I think is one of your best works. Do you feel like, Every chance you do, I know you've written hyper-specialization in certain topics like we did. We kind of go down a rabbit hole, deep niche. This book is special because it's so universal and so timely and topical. Um, it's, it's like we're all into the zeitgeist of what's happening. Like, oh my gosh, it's not working. And the things we've been saying haven't gotten out there. Mm -hmm. But as you have progressed in your writing and thinking, do you feel like this book you know, is, is unique or it benefited from 10 prequels or 10 other efforts? Because really, I can tell I'm like, oh, here's a writer who's done a lot of writing and has thought more deeply and refined her own thinking. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's just like parenting. Second one's a little easier. You know, you kind of like, you know, like you, you get this sort of skill set, it goes out in the world and you're like, oh, next time I'm going to change the way that I do this. So as far as writing goes, yes. And then also when you're creating the subject matter for a book. And I notice in your book, it's very similar just for my audience. The Starrett's book is built to move. We are in a time, it seems like, where simple steps give me the, the pared down version, like the most simple thing that I can do in a very short format. This book was essays, for example. I like didn't even want someone to feel like they had to read the whole book. In, like We're sort of in the short form Instagram soundbite 
situation. So I thought, well, I'll try it this way. We'll see if I throw the spaghetti at the wall and it sticks like this. So, so yeah, it's, it's a reflection of the times. It's a reflection of writing for a long time. And then it is also just knowing my own material better, just seeing my material land with more people and not land with other people and figure out how I, what is the key? I think of every single person as having a key that's unique to them. And you can't say it too many times, but you can't say it the same way again and again and again. You got to change a word or two. You got to change a metaphor. You got to raise your voice. You have to whisper because everyone's different. I relate to that a lot. In fact, you know, sometimes um, Kelly gets a little frustrated because he often feels like he's been saying the same thing over and over again a thousand times or even, you know, sometimes we'll suggest a video and he's like, I've made that video. I've made that video 10 times and we're like, well, and maybe you need to make it 12 different ways. And, you know, and maybe whispering is the key for you going forward is whisper a voice. We've never tried that one. But I mean, I really appreciate what you're saying is, you know, is that you might need to say it differently to different people so they can hear it. And then also you never know who is landing on your page or your content for the first time for whatever reason have never heard it before. So I I do think there's something to say for, you know, continuing to say the same thing over and over and over again. Let me just say that I also, it's important. I feel like we're in a cabal with some writers, things, you, Jill Miller, right? Where it's important that we all have very unique voices because, you know, like you say, people hear this very differently. And I don't know if you noticed that, but I'm a 240 pound white guy without hair and tattoos. I'm just not going to reach all the people. So, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading your book is that, again, speaking of this cabal concept, it seems like there's a bunch of us in this space who have, or at least I can speak for Kelly and I, we've evolved where I turned 50 this year, Kelly's turning 50 in four months. You know, we've been able to take some time to reflect on what we've done, what we haven't done and what's been working. And I think one of the reasons we wrote this book is that we sort of looked upon our industry of health, wellness, fitness people. The industrial complex. The industrial complex actually with like a, a, a measure of criticism because, you know, as you know, and have talked about on many podcasts and you're in your book, like things aren't going well from a health standpoint in our country, right? Like we're spending billions of dollars. Everybody's getting more sick, more fat, has more pain. You know, we're just really struggling from an overall health standpoint. And so I'm wondering if you've sort of landed in that same place and are trying to sort of self-reflect the way we are and say, okay, how can we keep trying to like cast a wider net and bring more people into this conversation of what it means to be healthy and make it more accessible? Was that kind of a driving force like it was for us? A little bit. I mean, I'm 47. I'm around the same age. And I think that when I, you know, I come out of graduate school and I have all of this information and understanding and it's such a simple tool, it's so easy and inexpensive to pick it up that I, my earlier ways of speaking about it really come from that place, that place of that stage of life as well. Like that stage of being in your 20s gives you a particular perspective of how easy it is to start moving or do a lot of sports and then, right. And then the work responsibilities creep up and then the children creep up. And then you just get a sense of, oh, there are more obstacles here than I could have fully appreciated. And so that's part of the feedback that you get where people are like, there's no way I can do this because this is my life. And to a certain extent, some of it is the narrative that we have that there's no time. It's like, how much time are you on YouTube? Right. You know, like there's a lot of time, but I also could recognize that I was missing the key 
to this audience that was myself ultimately as I moved through the stages of life. And while I can also appreciate the stages of life, we are also in a stage of life as a country, as a culture on, around the globe where there's these bigger trends that simply didn't exist before. We are operating, and I think it's not said enough, it's not fully appreciated. We are operating in a completely novel environment, completely novel. And if we just add the digital tech aspect, nobody knows how to parent in this. Nobody knows how to age in this. No one knows how to get their needs met because this environment seems to have come with these unintended consequences of it affecting sleep and movement and nutrition and community and relationships. And when you look at it in that way, it's like, there's no blueprint here. So I, I try to give a little bit of grace to be like, we're just going, I don't know, but I have an idea and I'm willing to put it out there. And these are all like, I feel like these books that everyone is writing and these programs that people are creating, they're like, they're labors of love. You know, they're not career decisions as much as they are like, I really feel that I would love my fellow humans to have this as a tool. And, and I love that space. But yeah, I mean, I'm definitely coming from it in, this, in somewhat of the same way. I think all three of us and the larger community of us who, you know, in the carass working towards these things or trying to solve these or improve the ball are recognizing, as you say, a gigantic mismatch between humans and our two and a half million years of being on this planet. And I'm not talking about like pining for the old days, that's what I mean. Wasp nest soup. I can't <laughs> even say Fermented it. Fermented wasp I can't nest even say it soup. <laughs> I don't need to eat all of those gross things. But what do you I, like your teeth? I do also like my teeth. Julie and I have discovered recently that one of my fears is in the zombie apocalypse, I'm going to have like a toothache, and that's what takes me out. That's like my thing. <laughs> you have dreams where your teeth are falling out? Like, is that your dream? No, that doesn't happen. Just that it's a like a waking. I'm like, yeah, you know, because I, I have all these broken teeth that I'm dealing with all the time. I'm like, this is what takes me out. Not the lion, not the not the crowd with pitchforks. It's no, no, it's no. this tooth infection. It's the abscess. You know, there's this gigantic human mismatch, speed mismatch. You have just come back from taking your family and leaving abroad, which is so cool. I, I think always, I always feel like a little bit of an outsider. I grew up in Europe and didn't come back to the United States until I was 15. I dropped right into a, like a big high school in the East Coast. And it was culture shock. I mean, big time. I'm like, what do you mean you don't ride your bike? And like, what is this? You can actually have a pizza delivered to your house. I mean, all those things just blew my mind, right? I know some of the people, the kids are going to listen to this and be like, what? He's so old. He's so old. The question I have for you is what stood out most as you moved back from Central America with your family and the shock, the speed you mentioned a little bit, but what in terms of, wow, I can really see the differences between what we might be doing better and what we're not doing as well as we could. The biggest thing, you know, like I'm really about the distinction between movement and exercise. That's been my thought process for a long time, really teasing it out more for scientific purposes and public health purposes, because I think there's a reason physical activity and exercise and movement have different definitions. But there's another element to movement that often gets overlooked. And I've tried to course correct it in my own writing in the last four or five years and my own offerings is while we have this huge problem with sedentarism, Simultaneously, there are many people who aren't sedentary in our culture. 
they are the laborers. So it's when we're writing these books, you know, oftentimes really geared towards people who sit a lot, but there is still a large number of people who don't. So labor, being spending time in Central America is just, I really recognized how much labor we've gotten rid of from eyesight. Labor is still happening, but it's not everyone is spending a lot of time seeing the labor go down. And the reason I, I mean, back when I wrote Move Your DNA, I, it was like a couple sentences, you know, almost like a footnote to say, you know, in these discussions about like move more for your health, don't move, not great for your health, is this other group who are laboring who are also not healthy. And if you put an activity tracker and a pedometer on them, they would be active, but their issue, which you probably already understand is just it's repetitive motions. Their movement diet is also not broad. What do you mean? When you say movement diet, explain that for everyone. Movement diet is I'm trying to really help people capitalizing on this framework that we understand of nutrition, that it's like, hey, calories, great. Make sure you get enough calories. And it's like, awesome. Okay. Well, you know, and if you eat enough calories, everything will be great. And it's like, well, well, there's these macronutrients here. All right, we're going to dial it in a little bit more. And then uh, you get that dialed and you're like, oh no, I'm still having this issue. It's like, well, there's these thing called micronutrients. So you got to dial all of that in too. And what nutrients are is just something is identified as a nutrient in hindsight. When you have it, when you have the absence of the thing, the compound, there's predictable symptoms that arise. Scurvy. Yeah, right. Scurvy. <laughs> scurvy is always the easy one. That's the, that's like the kindergarten model. We're like, got nailed it. Nutrition done. So these, these micronutrients, we sort of have a just eat some movement. Just at the we're like at the calorie phase. We're so like just move and and many people are in a movement drought and can absolutely benefit from that. And we also need expanded messaging when we're talking about who identifies with our work and who doesn't is the person who's like, I'm on my feet 10 hours a day. When you say I need to move more, that doesn't make sense to me. I've got this thing in my hip. It's not because I'm not moving enough. You're like, right. Okay. Macronutrients. What's your walking? What's your floor sitting ability? What's your um, ability to hang or move from your arms? Um, you know, like some general, how can you carry something heavy? And then micronutrients is really in the realm of corrective exercise, physiotherapy. It's like, okay, you're hanging, but you know what? Your elbow's 15 degrees in this position, and that's going to keep this part of your body sedentary. You are active with sedentary tissues and sedentary cells within an otherwise active body. So this is all to answer your question 17 minutes ago, which is what did I learn in Costa Rica and in Nicaragua is labor is much more intact in these places. And it's not to celebrate labor done without choice or in more oppressive situations, but it's to recognize that when we talk about where the movement has gone, we really no longer labor for things. And so like, that's what I'm really interested in my 17th book will be looking at labor. And, and also like with Grow Wild, that book I wrote for families, it's like, we really need to be introducing our children to labor movement. And that could be as simple as having a garden, walk active transportation, walking or moving for the things that you need versus only where movement currently sits for many people on the, are you familiar with the sloth 
like the sloth time economy model, which is all humans spend their time into five life domains, S-L-O-T-H, sleeping, leisure, occupation, transportation, and home. Those are the domains. Transportation, most of us do, set, we pick sedentary forms of transportation. So it's this idea of you could get back a little bit more movement in that domain. And so just even walking to the store, not necessarily for your health, but just to move for the things that you need. And so the nice thing was my family got to see that contrast of people who go out and labor very hard all day long, certainly comes with its own issues, um, but also that there was still joy, right? That there could still be lots of joy and gratitude about physical capability and things like that. So I just want to go back to something you mentioned before, which I think is based on a diagram I've seen of yours. And I don't remember if it was in Move Your DNA or one of your other works, but this differentiation between physical activity, movement and exercise. And so if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that, because I mean, I think Kelly and I often, I think we've really come to believe that like exercise is sort of an extracurricular and that the movement piece ultimately is more important. And I think we have a lot of not just Walking, not, not just, just walking, got but my the, steps yeah, on my the overall, overall right. movement. Um, and, you know, obviously we can all agree that the data is bearing out to be true that, you know, people are spending billions of dollars going to Peloton and that doesn't seem to be moving the needle at all. Whatever. Well, we I, are the best nation in the world at Peloton. That's true. We are really good at Peloton. So, yeah, tell us about those, you know, sort of that framework that you've developed, because I think it's really informative and instructive. Well, OK, so simple diagrams. We love simple diagrams. Just a big giant circle. And the word movement is written on top of it. Like that's the biggest category because it encompasses any change in position of your body or change in the shape of your tissues, right? It's because pressure is going to also be in that category, but not everyone, people are sort of um, missing the vitamin pressure. Um, so giant category, everything fits inside this category, but inside of this circle is a second circle, which is physical activity. Physical activity, and these are just clinical definitions. Physical activity is movements that use your musculoskeletal system to an extent that they utilize calories. So we definitely have a calorie-centric scientific perspective on movement. That's sort of locking us to where I think that that right there is a big part of why, why movement people will have, you know, 400,000 followers, but not 7 million, right? Like it's just like, it's so linked to calorie expenditure. So that's physical activity. And that could be, again, a lot of things that go in the movement category, but it wouldn't like be pressure related movement. So you rolling out your body or getting on the floor and, and learning how to tenderize or doing pressure types therapy, that wouldn't necessarily fit inside the physical activity category. And then exercise is a smaller circle still that sits inside physical activity. So it's like three rings, movement, smaller circle, physical activity, smaller circle, exercise. And exercise is, it's movements that meet the same conditions of physical activity, but are done so that they have to use a musculoskeletal system in a way that utilizes some KCALs. But they're done with predetermined You've got predetermined specs on them. You've picked the mode, you've picked the duration, you've picked how far, how many, how long, and you're doing it for the intention of health. So it's very isolated. So to show you just a comparison, 
if you get on your bicycle and you're like, I'm going to go ride for one hour today and I'm doing this for my well-being, that will fit into exercise. You pick the mode. It's sort of scripted. If you take that exact same bike ride to get to work, same equipment, same you body, same rate, same distance, but distance, but use it for transportation. That's what moves it out of exercise into the physical activity category. So the movements aren't really different. The benefits to you physically aren't different, but it's about your ability to see where movement can fit inside your life outside of purposefully done exercise, which goes into that sloth model. That's in the leisure category. So exercise is a leisure-based activity by definition. All of us here are trying to expand it, but that's where it sits right now as far as you know language goes in in common in, in i would say common usage in the upper echelons of medicine and public health is still on that exercise model do you think that's why when we work with industrial athletes people use their bodies they're like are you telling me i really need to go lift weights you know they kind of push back and like to get healthier i need to go do formal exercise do you think that that's some of the sort of the why when we view exercise as leisure activity, then we suddenly have a filter of looking at the gym and really gym culture and physical culture as, wow, that's a hobby. I mean, I think, you know, Juliet and I talk about is, hey, I want you to view your Peloton and yoga class as a sport. And that means it makes it a leisure activity. I think that's cool, yeah. but comma, we're missing a lot potentially. And we won't capture everyone with that. Like when I was talking with my neighbor in uh, Costa Rica, who labored extensively and was trying to talk about movement for your health. It was like, are you kidding me? Like, come listen to what she's saying right now, that movement is like, you know, and doing exercise for your health. Like it was, again, that cultural perspective. It's like, yes, of course, I can completely understand because many people move a lot and aren't feeling well or robust. But yes, it's just sort of a, it is a solution, you know, and it's not a dumb solution. It's a smart solution. It's just that when we're trying to figure out how something works, and I'm trying to figure out how sedentarism works. I spent the first 20 years figuring out how movement works, and then I switched to how does sedentarism work? Because I think that that's the next question to permeate a little bit more. I, I feel like, yeah, the perception of movement, the fact that it for many people is sort of a leisure time. I mean, you need an outfit for it. You need a costume for it. You're like, you know what I mean? Costume. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we, we literally we call it our exercise. I'm we like, love that. Let's put we, on our exercise costume. Yeah, like, let's go. put on our exercise costume. If there are active clothes, what are all the other clothes? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So it's just the perception of it. Couch clothes. Exactly. Somehow we've created a life, Katie, where we can wear those exercise costumes 24 hours a day. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. <laughs> Killing it. <laughs> You know, um, just a, a couple comments I was also going to say. It's I think this whole movement piece is not only, or the exercise piece is not only cultural, but it's also generational. If I look at my grandma, Georgia, who literally never exercised a moment in her life and lived to be 90, probably actually would have lived to be 100 if she wasn't a smoker. But, you know, I, I look at that generation and I think these days we all assume this like thing where you exercise and put on your costume and go do a thing has been around forever, but it really hasn't been. That costumed yeah, people leisure played, takes place in a one-hour chunk. That's yeah, yeah. really nice. People played sports, of course, and there's this, of course, you know, hundreds of years of sporting tradition. But but the notion that you know, if you're not playing a sport and that you would kind of go do these like fake movements in in controlled environments, like that's I feel like that really blew up in the 80s. It's not that long ago. 
And the other thing I was going to say that when you were talking about sort of having this like broad movement diet, it made me think of, you know, one of my personal heroes, Kate Shanahan and her book, Deep Nutrition. And, you know, she says that one of the pillars of nutrition in every culture for a millennial is eating a broad a array, a millennium, has been eating a broad array of fruits and vegetables. And it, it seems to me that, you know, it's the same thing with movement, right? Like if you want to think about it as like, I shouldn't just eat carrots, right? Which is what most Americans do. Most Americans eat four vegetables, right? We shouldn't just eat four vegetables. I should eat a broad array and it should ideally be seasonal. And, you know, that's how I get all the benefits of it. And I think, you know, you're sort of painting the picture that that's how we should think about our movement life in that same way. I love that. Well, we're confused about what a nutrient is. Like, I think we're just like a nutrient is, it's something that's good for me as much as I want the end, right? And like, we just have this way of categorizing things, but like, you cannot live on kale. You will be very sick. You will become malnourished if you live on a- Did you say sick or sad? Because I think sad <laughs> being first. <laughs> You'd have like really jacked jaw muscles though. Really jacked <laughs> jaw muscles from all that chewing. Yeah, so it's just all nutrients work with all other nutrients, right? There is a nutritious diet. There is not. And that's why when people are like, just- What's the best exercise? You're like, I can see from your face right away. Like that. And the other question is like, what about rebounding? Like those are the two most questions that I get. And I think if people are trying to nail down, they're trying to find the simplicity of it. So my solution is let me offer a movement diet. Still really simple concept. And you can get the sense of how you sort that out. You know, we can take more steps, but what's your movement diet? Is it one food, one mode of exercise? Are you using one range of motion only? And you're Time in your office counts towards your movement diet. It's not your exercise diet. Is how is your body physically positioned and changing that position throughout your day, throughout your life, and that's what you have control over. I love it. We, uh, I have been using this language, the verbiage of movement lexicon of trying to expand your vocabulary. I'm like, you're writing three word poems and you're capable of Shakespeare, and I think it's a little bit of why we've seen some thinkers in the space really, I think of someone like Udo Portal and his idea of movement and application and exploration of self and why some of those thinkers in that category, not pulling out Udo or any other reason, but he's done been a good example of saying, hey, the things that we're passing off as making me a more skilled mover and being able to write this poetry in the classical gym setting isn't really purporting to do what we think it's purporting to do. Right, because we're still seeing the same sets of, you know, hip disease, lumbar disease, poor interest, but we're seeing big jack people who are tan and look good on Instagram. There's nothing wrong with that, comma. It may not be the best long-term play. And also, we have to keep remembering that the people coming, me as myself included, like the people writing the guidelines, thinking through the solutions, preparing it, live in a gym live lives where they're in their exercise costumes. And so it's just really challenging to think outside your own culture when you're coming up with a solution because it's like, you're getting paid to do that. So your movement is fitting inside your the O of sloth. It's in your occupation. What about everyone else for whom it's not? And that's what you've written a book for, right? You're trying to say, you do not have to do this professionally or even abundantly. It's just like, these tiny steps that we can start taking that fit into, I mean, that really fit into all of these domains, which is, you know, what I appreciate about the book. 
I just feel like we have tried to take this view because I think something you touched on is that it has felt for a long time like those of us who are in this industry occupationally or are, you know, at least like weekend warriors where we want to like talk about fitness on the weekend. You know, we sort of have like taken over and had like a, you know, like we're kings and queens of health, but we want to expand it so that other people can own health as well, but not in the way that we do, you know, not in this totally all encompassing way where we think, talk, breathe, you know, health, wellness, fitness, 24 hours a day, right? The goal is to try to open up the door so that people feel like they can have a seat at the I'm healthy table without having to put so much of their attention and focus on it. And take all 100% of their leisure time yeah, and to, try to, to like, invent a sport that they need to go do for their health. I think that's where we see this real dissonance. We were just listening to Ezra Klein on their drive back up from the South. And they were he was talking about interviewing a person who was really looking at the public health crisis and psychological crisis in teens and particularly teen girls. And, you know, one of the things that they, the researchers have pulled out is they really think there is this inflect, this sort of inflection point at the advent of social media where suddenly we're not engaging and teens aren't engaging with other people and all the other intended, unintended consequences, as you said, where suddenly we're seeing the erosion of sleep. I think what that brings up for me is sometimes the the missing components, Juliet has started saying recently, there's two things that people do together. They eat together and they move together. And you could expand that, hey, we, we work together, potentially, if that's our, our movement piece. But we sometimes, in, as we've come from high performance, really high performance environments, we forget that there are these huge psycho-emotional cultural components to sitting down together and eating together and moving together, and we're not honoring that sufficiently. Did you feel that a little bit differently when you were out of the United States? That's actually a big part of the work that I try to do even here in the United States was in the, it was in the kids' book or the, you know, the kid to preteen book is we've got to start like relayering movement, food, and community together and celebration. Like, I think that celebration is also, has always been a conduit for those things, even if it was just mundane celebration, like, oh, look, that, you know, that the tree has given the thing that we all need. And if we don't get it, we'll die. Party, but the party is also you picking up everything and then pounding it and you get to hang out. So I feel like this is like the key place for layering movement. And yes, abroad, there is just a lot more social labor together the fish have come in, we are all getting together and making the big giant pot of something. It's labor, but we're having a party while we do it. This is else is also our social time. It's not that different than like, let's get coffee and take a walk, right? It's trying to stack multiple needs at the same time. And you would just see that over and over again of like, oh, I need someone to come with me to do this project, but it'll also be what we do all day. And there's just lots of chatting and enjoyment. And so, yeah, I, it's much more, what I want to say, like, I feel like it's more, it has to be more forced here. You have to be creative. You have to plan it. You have to think about it there. It's the intact natural way. Like we do everything in series. Like I say, everything is fast really in, you know, we're in, we're in North America. Everything is fast. But at the same time, we're meeting fewer needs and the needs that we're not meeting were the actual needs. We're meeting a lot of our wants, not meeting a lot of our needs because we're trying to do them in series. This is my time for my movement. This is my time for my family. This is my time for my partner. This is my time for my friends. Oh, this is the, oh, we got to have the party for the thing. It's like all separate. 
No wonder everyone feels so time crunched, right? When you say it like that, you're like, wow, all these things have to happen as separate events. And you're like, and somewhere I have to like work a whole day in there. Yeah. And we're talking about multitasking and I'm like, we don't need multitasking. We need stacking, which is you rethink the task, pick one that meets more needs. We need to increase the nutrient density of our periods of time. We do not have nutrient dense periods of time. A single thing is happening in a period of time. So, so when you're, you know, the things that you're talking about, it's like, you're going to walk to the store and you're going to carry your bag home so that you don't have to go to a separate place for movement and carry like nothing to nowhere, carry something to know, you know, because we figured it out that we need it. We have figured out that we need it. What we haven't figured out is how to get it more often. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Momentus. Today, we are talking about one of our essential practices as a family, and that is taking the momentous multivitamin. Yeah, you know, what we see is that people often aren't getting enough micronutrients from their food, which of course is the preferred source of getting micronutrients, but often they aren't. And they're not getting a whole lot. Like, like if my children, if it was just up to Caroline, she would just say like an apple and some pineapple and then brown food. Right. And I know that when she takes a multivitamin, I'm covering the basics if my nutrition can't be on point. Because it, we do find ourselves sometimes behind the, the eight ball, people find themselves where they just can't control and eat a huge variety of fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And I think if you're someone who is never, ever going to take a big pile of pills every day, but you want to make sure you're covering all your bases, the essential multi is the thing that I would recommend. I really like that. I think that's the way to think about it is, hey, it's insurance. A, it's really high quality. It's it's not those you know, dinosaur vitamins, your, your parents made you <laughs> chew up when like you Those shot down. Those are What I really think though is when we have high quality micronutrients in support of nutrition that sometimes isn't on point. I mean, let's be honest. I had a breakfast burrito this morning. What do you think the, the micronutrient density of my breakfast burrito was? Zero. Zero. <laughs> but it's cool because I'm like, hey, I've got my multivitamin and then I'm going to crush all the fruits and vegetables later on today. But... In this situation, I know I'm covered, and that's a good way to think about it. It's about consistency over the long haul. Go check out the Essential Multi and all the other awesome Momentous products at livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons why we're obsessed with, and I mean, it's not very sexy. And I think you, you know, reference why, why we have, like all of us have not that many followers on Instagram and, you know, the people with abs do, but, you know, we're obsessed and talk constantly about walking. But to me, that's like the, again, the greatest activity to stack. You can drink your coffee, you get some sunlight, you can practice breathing through your nose, you can do it with friends. So you connect with community. You could actually carry a thing, You right? drop your kids like, off at school. Drop off your kids at school. You could, right, there's like, there's so many ways to make just the simple act of walking, the sort of stacked behavior you're talking about, where you can check so many of our need, our human needs boxes, like all in a little thing. And it can be 20 minutes. Right. And I developed a walking school bus at our kids elementary school when they were there and we would, you know, walk to school every day. And it turned out that the walking was, I mean, it was cool and that was great. We got some steps in and whatever, it turns out that was the least awesome thing about the walking school bus. Right. We had these days where we got this really intensive, like 20 minutes of quality time with our kids, or we could talk and connect. The transition handoff to school. The transition was to school. 
we like made friends with new parents and got to know them and learn about their lives. Like there were just all these side benefits of it and something we really miss. Actually, we talk about now that our kids are older and we don't have the walking school bus. It was just this really like tight connected part of our day that we miss a lot because it was, it had so much, it was so rich and it was for 20 minutes, literally, but so rich. Yeah. Time doesn't say anything. It's all about the density of what's happening. I love, uh, one of our friends is a coach in Boulder. She owns CrossFit Roots, Nicole Christensen. And when it's, you know, she's a professional strength conditioning coach and she works with elite athletes, incredible cyclists. She's really an amazing woman thinker. But when she and her husband go ride their mountain bikes together, people are like, did you get a good workout? She's like, we don't nature for time. I'm just hearing the language that you're using about making sure, you know, nature we're for time. nature for time, I thought is a really nice idea. We really have tried to say, well, everything has to fit into this leisure exercise bucket. Otherwise it's not worth doing. One of the things that we took a swing at in this book was to try to create some vital signs where we could at least come up with some benchmarks because sort of one of the things that in our sort of fitness fit care community, you know, everyone is like, I'm killing it. I know I'm killing it. And I'm like, okay, great. Let's do some third-party testing validation. Cause that's what we've done with public health measures. That's our third-party validation of our community, of our health, of our, of our nation, right. Of our, of our state health. We're seeing it and it all doesn't seem to be going very well. But when we ask people to go play and explore new sports, they often find they have these horrific blind spots. Well, I'm really strong, but I'm not very fit. Man, standing on one leg in yoga was really hard, you know? And, and what we're always saying is, hey, let's go ahead and try to help you reimagine a movement life, a fitness life that you can go drop into any novel task. I don't know, for 15 years, we've said, the best athlete is the person who can pick up the new skill the fastest. That means they can transfer skills more effectively. They have access to, you know, movement solutions because of what their practices look like allows them to create new novel, you know, movement solutions to a new task, right? That's the highlight of it. And by creating these vital signs, we're like, look, we don't really, we've become totally agnostic about how you want to move, but we're like, show us the proof of your work. You know, and what we're seeing is that, I'm like, your keto diet is super cool until we cut you in half and looked at your blood panel and we were horrified to find out that you really weren't doing great. You know, I, I think we need those third-party validations. We've thought about in vital signs, how are you helping people to kind of come up with minimums? Because I think that's where we are as a culture. Hey, what's the minimum vitamin C so I don't get scurvy? What's the minimum hip flexion exposure so that I can maintain my range of motion? I really let people set those themselves, but they have to set them and then hold them constant on the outside of them. Because one of the things that I have, I guess, realized in this journey is, you know, for like an athlete, you're talking about the athletes and like people who really value physical fitness and physical performance. And they take a test and like, wow, my performance is on point here, but not on these other arcs. And that's disturbing because they value physical fitness. What I have figured out through lots of conversation is many people just don't value performance or physical fitness in the way they think about it. It's not in their value system. And I've just like, oh, I have been assuming that everyone has the same value system as me. But so I'll, I'll just tell an aside because this is what I do and then come back to the original question. I just did a big launch for my book, but I didn't want to go into the same 
you're talking to the same groups of people, people who are already sort of interested in fitness. They're not there yet. They're watching you. They're trying to get that step. And I'm like, where are the people who are not? That's who I need to be talking to. And I was like, same. We're trying to find those people too. (laughs) Yes. So for me, I'm and just like, spoiler alert, I'm a nerd and I'm a book nerd. I don't only write books. I read books. Like books are really my portal to the world, not just movement books, but just all books. And I was like, oh, right. And my personal story is I came from a non-moving, very sedentary background and was able to transition into someone who was a mover. And that's kind of who I tend to write for because I know that journey really well. But I was like, I'm going to hold an event for book people who have been sort of who feel that there are movers and there are brainiacs and there's no overlap. The people who would never pick up a book about movement, do a movement class like that's for people. And not to not to say that everyone thinks that movement people don't think, but there is definitely a trope, right, that there are like bookish people and there are jocks, you know, and like that, those are your options. And I don't think that's true, but I think that that idea permeates and people tend to self-sort themselves in that way. I was never picked for a sports team. I was always picked last. I have no coordination. I was discouraged from movement at such a young age because athletics was my only portal offered at that time of development that I just figured athletics equals movement. Movement's not for me. Books are for me. So we had over a thousand people show up to be like, I'm a book person and I felt like my body's neglected and now reading's hurting my body. I'm like, right, you're like any other athlete. Reading is your sport, but you are not cross-training. And reading's a primarily upper body sport. You grip, I mean, people are like, I can't read big books anymore because my wrists can't hold them. Like, right, they're saying the same thing that people are saying in a gym about their preferred sport. I can't do what I what I love and yeah, how I identify. I can't do what I want, right. That's right? Whatever that is. I can't do what I love and what my value system is and I can't do it because there's a structural problem and I can't do it because I don't have muscular endurance and I was like, right, because you, we all need a movement diet. Your sport is reading. This is your program readers who want to keep on reading and like boom, give it to me because now I see how movement relates. Yes. And so the way for me, those benchmarks are more like, what is it that you value most in life? How are you doing on that? Where do you feel like your physicality is getting in the way of it? That's how you can tell if you're doing it or not. This is how you figure out where to play with movement meals, movement supplements, however you want to think about it. Like this is yours. Right. I mean, the big thing we've been saying is that we're trying to help people be able to do what they want to do physically with their body, whatever that is. We've even sort of expanded our definition of mobility. Mobility to to include that. What is it you need to do or want to do or maybe think you might do? You might do. So, you know, I have to tell you a quick story here that I thought of as you were talking about this. I think what you're really talking about is like people's identity, right? Like they become, they create a, a, you know, we, Kelly and I obviously have this movie identity as like athletic movers. And, you know, you at least at one point had this identity as a bookish person. You know, and then there's many others, but the one story I'll tell you is we have a dear friend uh, named Chris who was working for years in sort of more like creative pursuits. And Kelly was talking to him about something related to mobilizing or taking care of your body or being physical. And he said in complete honesty, like, well, are these things for creatives too? 
or what you're talking about for creatives. And so we've always thought that was so interesting, right? Because he felt like, oh, okay, well, you're talking about something that relates to moving the body. And he actually wasn't sure right away whether that would be appropriate for creatives who don't have an interest in, or at least a sort of hobby in moving their bodies. I thought that was so interesting. So what I want to know is how did you go from being a non-mover into being a mover? Like, what was that transition? And the reason that I'll ask that is that I have noticed in my own friends in life that it seems like there's a trend. Like if people have learned to move as kids or for whatever reason, for whatever reason, or have fallen in love with a sport or an, a physical activity, that it tends to be easier for them to continue to do that in their life versus my friends who didn't grow up with a movement tradition or sport or whatever. And then, you know, they get to 40 and realize, oh crap, I need to move. Like I've realized like now, okay, now. And it's much harder for them to sort of incorporate that into their life. So I think your story is so interesting to be able to share with people that like you can start later and develop a love of movement. Like what changed for you? Where did you make that sort of mental emotional transition to saying, okay, I'm not just a, I can still be a bookish person and a mover, or I can still be a creative and a mover. I think I'm still making that transition, frankly, right? Like it's just a very long journey. I do think we come we come with what our passions are and my passions are just consuming information to a hyper detail and integrating it. Probably what was my exit out early on is I just happened like I'm a biomechanist, like I just really love like physics and math, sitting down and doing it, but just I just started to feel like I think my body didn't feel good. And I had one parent who was very sedentary and one parent who wasn't, but the parent who wasn't, I didn't live with that, my dad all of the time. So I had like these little touchstones of movement, but I was just more supported in my not moving endeavors. And then I think it was going through a hard time as a teenager. I started walking out of necessity right? Because you didn't get a car when you're a teenager and like you're angsty. And so I was like, fine, I'm going to go where I want to go. And you're not going to get me. I'm going to walk, you know, I'll show you. And then you walk and you blow off steam and you're just like, and I'm a hyper observer. So again, that's like maybe a personal trait. And I was like, that felt good. And then I just started making that choice. Like it was sort of an accident at first. And then I started making that choice. And then I would come home from school and want to go on another walk. I'd want to go walk for two or three hours, like walking for me, even now I'm a long distance walker, like 20 to 30 miles with regularity as just, a, it's like a spiritual practice. It's a detoxing practice. It's a self-organizing practice for me. So I started walking and then I joined a gym. So I actually came through the gym piece. And I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> why do these people have headphones and not so talk weird. to each Look other? At these costumes. Weird. Well, this was before, I mean, this was before there was even TVs. What I used to watch when I was on the Stairmaster for 20 minutes. Yes. Yeah, me too. I looked down on the group exercise room. So that was the entertainment was you watch everyone who was in the group exercise room. And this was in the early 90s. So there was a lot of people in there doing a lot of things on a step. And I saw it and I just knew I'm like, I want to do that. I want to lead that. Like, I want to teach that because I like to be entertaining. I thought I could make people enjoy doing this while they're doing it. And I just set myself on that path, still being very bookish. In the last essay in Rethink Your Position is all about, I hated running the mile. I hated it in school, like, because I was slow and you didn't get a lot of peer support back then. Peers are maybe more kinder now. 
But then one girl ran with me one time and she was a cross country star. I was in seventh grade. She was like in sixth grade. She ran with me the entire mile and I was distracted from hating it. And then, then I was like, so much of my struggle was in my mind. I hate this. I hate this. Why are you making me do this? You know, same thing sort of like that's in my kid's heads when I make them do anything, right? Like you pick the attitude you're going to have to it first. And so then once I realized, wow, if I have a different vibe, this doesn't feel so bad. And then I just got fast. And then I just like, that's, it's a longer story. Did you become a step aerobics instructor? Oh yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And I would still, if someone, I would still teach a wicked class today. If y'all want to come, I would just like lead awesome class. I want to come. You know, what's cool. CrossFit is step aerobics with weights. All the movements are there. You, you learn all the choreography and then people put music on. And then for 20 minutes or whatever time domain there is, it's just heavier step aerobics. I did FYI. so much step aerobics. I'm just like, you know, fist bumping you through the Zoom right now. I would put plyometrics in there because I also started studying movement in college. So then I was like, we don't need to just keep doing this. I, I started making sports sports step aerobics where for skiers, you know, like where you can start protect your knee. Like I just started to get, I, I love creating like little programs like that. And don't blow your knee out on the slopes. Come to my sports step. And, and yeah, it was awesome. Sports step aerobics. I quote you a lot. And one of my, we may have run into this, but I call it Bowman's Orca is a phenomenon. No, I've never heard of that, but okay. <laughs> I've made 50 slides where I'm like, let me introduce you to a concept called Bowman's Orca. And people were like, where's this come from? I'm like, well, Katie Bowman, you need to understand. But I think it's a move your DNA. And it you explain sort of this notion of loading collagen, disuse, canotransduction is the fancy term for it. If you want your cells to work at a cellular level, you have to load them mechanically everyone, that's mechanotransduction. And if you don't load a tendon, it's not going to be a tendon. It can't do its tendon job at a cellular genetic level. Can you just explain to everyone in your own words what that Bowman's Orca concept is? Because it's so great. And I really, it has helped so many people be like, oh, I understand. Well, the Orca comes from just Orcas in captivity have folded fin, folded fin syndrome. You know, it's certainly in the wild, they can get bonked and it'll bend over a little bit. But um, male orcas in captivity, they have a very tall dorsal fin. That's the one on the back. It needs a lot of structure to hold it up. And it's specifically, we all have growth spurts. Like one of the reasons it's so important for movement for juveniles is that you're setting your adult shape. Like there's not a lot of going back. Great. This is my shape. <laughs> Great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Well, you're quite malleable, but like in your bone, like you have peak bone density. But so for orcas, again, nature has got that those beautiful systems in play. The growth spurt that comes with that really tall dorsal fin, the growth spurt of the dorsal fin during, we'll call it orca teenagehood, um, also comes with them swimming very strongly. You know, they're showing off, they're diving and jumping and racing and they're going very fast. And so the water creates a lot of supportive pressure on the fin as it's growing, right? Those relationships are thousands, hundreds of thousands of years old. The way an orca swims, it's anatomy and it's environment. Well, then you put that orca in an environment as it's growing and it's swimming in a circle every single day, all day long. That's the only way it can swim. 
The fin is shaped like the environment. It is so much of our shape is mechanically transduced. We all have genetics that we come with that create a lot of shape to our body, but we're like trees. Trees branch um, based on the loads that they experience in the wind. Um, they also ex experience nutrient availability, but, but the way that they branch, the amount that they branch, the shape that they end up having that's outside of like the way their bark and their leaves always look because of their genes is because of their mechanical environment. And so the fins, is it a parable? I don't know. It's just an example. It's like we work in this same way. Like the shape that we have of our body, of all of our tissues is about the loads that these tissues are experiencing. And, and the nice thing is we can still toggle them. Like right up until the day we die, we can toggle them. But during the youth, the juvenile period, they're much more plastic and pliable, but you've got to place the load on the body parts where you want them to adapt. There's, sy there's systemic adaptations to movement and there's local ones. And just, yeah, learning that phenomenon. So if you're a human orca and I change your environment where you're not loading and you are spending more time doing something that you typically not do, we should expect to see a folded fin in our bodies. Is that like? Yeah, like you're adapting to movement all the time, not just to the exercise. You're adapting to your shape and your position and your movement habits 100% of the time. So if you spend a lot of time in a chair or in you know whatever other environment you can imagine, that's your anatomy. Like you're adapting to that. Your anatomy is getting good at doing that. And what makes it difficult to go do something else is you got your chair anatomy. <laughs> like you have to gradually put your loads back to get your folded fin out so that you can then deal with the physical forces of being outside of that chair better. So one of the things I think we jointly talk about, but in different ways, but I love the way that you talk about thinking about all the types of movement we're doing almost as sports specialization. And I think as parents, you know, the term sports specialization is tossed around to us all the time because everybody knows like the worst thing you can do for your kids is you have mean your like kids. I'm a, I'm a cookie specialist. You are a cookie specialist. But I mean, I think that, you know, everybody knows the worst thing you can do for your kids athletically is to have them specialize too young in sport. And it's it, having teenage kids, it's really hard to not do that, I will say, um, even though we know better. But I think the same is true for all of our movement throughout the day. And I think most people don't think about the fact that if they spend the vast, you know, 15 hours of their day sitting, they're actually sitting specialists or that's our sport. Yeah. Yeah. That's your sport. Or, you know, if all you do as in that little exercise bubble is Peloton, then you're a Peloton specialist. Don't cross train. That's a great um, use. Useful yeah. Phrase. So I, I don't know, talk a little bit more about that. And then, and then I guess maybe, you know, how do we as a group continue to exp help people rethink that as a form of movement that they're practicing, we always say you're practicing, you know, you're getting good at sitting and you're practicing it all the time and you say specializing, but you know, how do we continue to help people evolve their thinking around this, you know, having this diverse amount of movement and not specializing, you know, how do we get people to sort of think differently about it other than saying, Hey, you're specializing in sitting. Cause that's what you do all the time. <laughs> well, I do think it helps with the, that initial, those intake questions because I don't think we, everyone, especially if you're not really movement oriented or identifying as someone who's a mover or sporty, I think the issue is people don't actually know that the their physical experience that they're having is influenced by a lot of other 
parts of their life. Or, I mean, we say lifestyle, but like even to be more specific, that it's influenced by your sleep, that it's influenced by your relationships, that it's influenced by your diet, that's influenced by movement. I know a lot of people out in a variety of communities. And that's the thing that I've learned. It's like, it's the same. I went to the dentist the other day and I've always taken really good care of my teeth because dental hygiene was something that my, that my family started off really young. And so it was just in my, in my awareness zone. And the dentist said, most people don't brush their teeth. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, right. I mean, if you grew up in a really, if you grew up in a home that knew about it, talked about it, but that's not the case. And it's generational. Like we are, you were saying before with movement, it's slowly becoming known. But like, I would say that people have known teeth for quite a while. And the fact that there's still large groups of people who get almost, they only go to the dentist in emergency. The dentist is like an ER. Like that's their understanding. How crazy is that? That sets the yeah. framework well, right? Well, That's I it. think, um, you know, the other story I'll share is that we ha used to have our in-house physical therapy clinic and obviously Kelly's a physical therapist. And I can't tell you how many weekend warrior type athletes we would have come in and say, oh my God, I blew my Achilles out this morning or I tore this or hurt this. And I was doing the exact same thing I do every single day, which is run for an hour. And I'm so shocked that I, you know, tore my Achilles because I was doing the same thing I did. And, you know, first of all, there would probably be a conversation about the running mechanics. But like in almost every case, once an assessment was done, we'd learn that they were going for that one hour run every day. But then they were sitting for 15 hours a day. Right. And but no. Ability, and not sleeping and, and not, not eating, sleeping and not and eating stress, and doing all these other and... things. But like I think what we're all trying to do here, which I appreciate so much is try to help people make these connections between these behaviors. You know, I think that's like one of the things we're proud of with this particular book of ours is that, you know, you can read great books on breathing and great books on sleeping and great books on nutrition, right? But like, we have never read a book where it says, okay, these are how all these behaviors are connected and influence one another. And I think that was, you know, what we're trying to do and have so much aligned in what you're doing as well. Yeah, I think the initial question is like, how do you feel? I mean, that's even part of like something else I learned being in um, Central America and I've been in uh, other parts of Africa as well is there's often like this patterned exchange, like, how are you? I am fine. How's your mother? How's your kid? Like, it just goes back and forth. You're just walking by each other and it's still going on, but that's protocol. And we also have a protocol in this culture, which is how you doing? Great, great. I'm not sure how often people actually sit down and write out their answer. Like I have sort of a Mad Lib that I've created, you know, I don't know if we need to give a shout out to Mad Libs, but like fill in the blanks here. Like even if, cause sometimes it's hard to muster the story. So it's like prompts. It's like, if my body felt better, I would boom this part. You know what I mean? Like let them fill in the words because that's another way of listening to your body. And I, it's really hard to get into movement. If you're not communicate, like this is a relationship. This is something else I put in the book. You are in a relationship with your body. You're in a relationship with people outward, but the other, and then you're in a relationship with your mind and, and that dialogue. And then you're in a relationship with your physical body. And that's not so great of a relationship. Like in the same way, if you were to look at like a marriage or an, an, any other partnership and be like, how you doing? You know, like you're regularly asking, you know how to watch, you know, like you could probably watch each other and know when something's bothering the other person just by the way their body language is or their face or their words. Like, we're fluent in many things, but 
we are not fluent in our physicality. And so we need prompts. Like I want to write a book where the cover of the book is those questions where someone walking by would be like, well, I never thought to ask that to myself before, because then it's sort of the same way that you're using those. I would say like, we need some objective markers here because the mental part of you is really good at keeping from yourself how things are actually going. Yeah, psychology is hidden. Yeah, right. We're generalists. Like as much as we talk about specialists, like spoiler alert, we are generalists. And so we have to put our heads down and get the day done. We have to deal with what's going on in life. And it's a lot. Like I even think again, back to this novel environment that a lot of us are just sort of like, we're, there's a lot of trauma going on, you know? And again, if you are particularly hardy or resistant or, or well-resourced, you can sort of push through it. But I think so many people are on their, they're white knuckling it. The idea of asking how they're doing physically isn't even on the realm of questions right now. Well, and if I ask that question, the thin veneer on which I'm standing yeah. is going to crack. Right? Well, plus I think human beings are so amazing in their uh, both ability to adapt, but also trick ourselves. You know, like I think the sleep thing is so amazing. And I don't know if we have time to talk about this today, but I mean, you know, I think what's so fascinating, the way the human brain works, that if you haven't gotten enough sleep and you don't get sleep for repeated nights, your brain tricks you into thinking you're functioning well like that's amazing like the human brain is amazing it tricks you into thinking that you are well even rested sucking. even though if you actually took any tests you would be horrible at the test but while you're there at work you're like i am slaying it today on this four hours of sleep and then you've tricked yourself into thinking that you can survive on four hours of sleep i mean that's what's amazing about the human brain you know we trick ourselves in lots of other ways as well and so it's like how do you sort of bypass our own human trickery Third party. That's what the third party is. Like the third party is that system. Right. And that's why we have these assessments in this book. We're like, take these tests. Let's see. One of the things that I love about this conversation is maybe we're all Carl Roger disciples, you know, unconditional positive regard. And that we feel like if we can get people to expand their movement lexicon, increase their movement diet, then they'll actually feel better and be able to do the things they want to do. And one of the things I think I struggle with in physical therapy as a profession is that they only orientated towards pain and disability. And I can understand that. That's all they see. And yet the research is sometimes muddied on or physical therapists will take you know offense to or like, you know, sitting causes pain. And what I'm always saying is like, hey, I'm not making that statement. I'm saying that if you do a certain thing or fail to do a lot of other things, you won't have access to the whole movement library. You won't be able to do. We have kind of settled on a conversation or a phrase that comes out of that sports performance side called session cost. Like if you do a big effort, we can sort of measure that session cost the next day, resting heart rate, heart variability, central nervous system arousal, whatever, right? I mean, like run a marathon, jump on a red eye, and we'll measure your hamstring range of motion the next day. That's session cost. So we're always talking to people like, how can we reduce session cost? And there is a, I don't want to say cost, right? But there is aspects of what you're doing every day that will limit other things. As you're saying, sitting, with, I'm specialized in sitting. It's going to be really difficult to put my arms over my head or extend my hip yeah, effectively. Right. Trade-offs. There's trade-offs. Trade-off is the right word. So one of the things I've tried to do is shift this idea of, hey, it's not do this or else you'll die and get cancer of, you know, of movement, you know, gonorrhea of your knees. 
you should do these things because you will feel that's my favorite go-to. Oh, I hate it. I had that. I had that. It was terrible. <laughs> Knee gonorrhea is real, everyone. So what, uh, you know, people always ask me like, what's wrong with your shoulder? I'm like, it's probably rabies. I don't know you. So it's rabies. But the idea here is we think people are living smaller feeling lives. They can feel better. They can have richer relationships. They can do the things they want to do and interact in their communities. If we can start to think differently about the problem, we've sold this as do these things, otherwise you die or your knees will get arthritis. And I feel like that message clearly hasn't worked. And it's something I just wanted to sort of give a shout out to you about that you just always do such a good job pointing positive. This is the philosophical question that I grapple with a lot. I have this book about wild foods, not the fermented wasp nest that you were talking about before, but other sort of wild foods from a wild food enthusiast and wrote in the 40s. And he opens it with this like little introduction about camping. It's like, we don't need to, we don't need to build our own shelters. We don't need to sleep outside anymore. It's not a pressure of society any longer. But when you go out and like make your own house for the day or the week in some natural spot and you sleep outside, you're, you're under the stars, like that feels good. Is the fact that society no longer needs us to do that, like what does that actually say about sleeping outside, be spending time outside in nature? And, and his argument then goes on to like, what about wild food? We don't eat wild food anymore. I can go to the grocery store and this is in the forties. You know, I can go to the grocery store and make a meal. I don't have to know, like, know the plants. I don't have to spend any time out in the woods moving things around. But it still makes me feel good to do it. It's still extremely nutritionally dense. I enjoy the process. I enjoy being with my friends when I do it. And I'm getting all these other things besides just the foods that I'm eating today. So when I read that, I was thinking about, well, we're actually not very far from that argument for movement any longer. Society has made the decision, you know, if there is a, a CEO of society, which there isn't, we've made the decision that moved to set up the structure to not require movement any longer. So then as soon as I read that, I mean, it didn't take me like, but two seconds after reading his thing about camping, it's like, oh, and I think this is why people are where they are with walking. Walking is like a quaint pastime that people used to do on the prairie. Like, why are you celebrating this? It's like camping. Like not everyone can do it anymore. It's like, that's how, like, we are very much starting to look at things, comparing them to what the machine of society requires. And so movement is on its way out, literally, right? Listen, that's, you can get everything now without movement. And we're like trying to argue for this pastime, like eating wasp's nest. We're like, no, really, if you just ate the wasp nest, it would be so amazing. Like, look, here's all the nutrient density of it. And you're like, eh, that's great. It's, it's sort of the same thing. We're just on this like longer trajectory. Right. It's very quaint. It feels quaint to be like, you need to walk more. You should sit on the ground. Yeah, right. What? It's very quaint. Yeah. So I, I think about that all the time. But at the same time, I'm like, well... If we go to those questions, though, and I was asking about, like, how is not having access to wild food, how does that relate to your experience in your life? I bet you if we asked about the movement, like, while we've gotten rid of the need for movement to execute daily tasks, we haven't figured out how to supplement movement in our body yet. Like, we've created giant 
grocery stores to meet that need. We don't have that for movement. And I think that this is, again, to go back to the earlier part that I was saying of why I think we're not making progress with movement has to, again, do with the definition of physical fitness itself. The In the definition, the clinical definition of what physical fitness is and where all of those tests stream down from is you have to be capable of doing everyday tasks with a little bit of energy left over. And our everyday tasks don't require anything anymore. So like on paper, on paper, because of the shift of society, it's the same thing with the shift of grip strength, right? Where they're like, everyone's grip strength is decreasing. It's like, all right, well then here's the new stats for it, which reflect the lower numbers. So OTs, you're gonna shoot for this lower baseline because society doesn't need stronger grip than that you know, until you pull out the other papers like on grip strength and all-time mortality. It's like, well, maybe we do. So I think we're just, we're at that place now where there's philosophical conversations that need to go into the science of movement, you know, and, and does a society determine what fit is? And maybe so, but I need to hear those arguments and those that hasn't happened yet, but I think that's where we are right now. Like that's why people have a hard time getting traction. It's like, I don't need to do anything with my body. Right, right, right. I mean, if it's all based on, you know, you do you have the capability to do the demands of everyday life and your demand of everyday life is sitting in your chair and going and sitting in front of your computer every day, that's certainly one kind of physical fitness, right? We don't really think of that as fitness, but, you know, you can do that without having a, a really wide movement length. Until you end right? up with dust bones. Yeah, until you end up with dust bones. So, I mean, I think, you know, we're also having this conversation about longevity. But what I was going to say when you were talking about this, I think this is why, you know, if we want to value movement the way the environment has been constructed for us, we do actually have to value like fake movement, right? Like quaint fake movement, right? Like people say, okay, well, you know, people in the blue zones, like they didn't have to go for a walk. And I was like, yeah, but they were moving their body and they had a wide movement language. And they did it for decades. They did it for decades. They lived and carried, moved and did all the things, right? We don't have that. So we do have to intentionally add in this like fake or quaint movement into our lives in order to actually have that. It's a supplement. We have to it's supplement, right? We have to think about it like that, right? We're not going to go back to paleolithic times and be able to move our bodies in all those ways. I like my teeth. It's true. Me too. You Katie, really we, like we can do this with you. I love your writing. I love your thinking. I think rethink your position is fantastic. I think it's such a wonderful way in to think differently about your place in the world and how you choose to express this physicality and the potential of your body in the world. That's sort of one valence removed from exercise. It really is. You're just saying, hey, let's reframe the whole conversation. And this book is this good. I can't read to wait to read book number 12. Sign me up. <laughs> just to bring it right around to writing a lot of books. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take it down. Well, thanks. And likewise, your book as well. It's, um, I mean, 10 steps, 10 glorious, simple steps. I hope people pick it up and utilize them. Here's a question. What's the step that's hardest for you? You wrote the 10 steps, but is there one step that's for you the hardest to, to do with regularity? Well, I'll, we'll both, you know, air our dirty laundry here. The one that's hardest for me is the squat test because I have horrible ankle range of motion for a variety of reasons, mostly having crap genetic hips and then a really bad ankle sprain as a high schooler. So I really have terrible ankle dorsiflexion. So the squat test is hey, for you me. you don't have terrible. You're actually a three-time world champion. Well, 
But you know what I'm saying? Like I, that for me is the test where I struggle the most. And you know, the thing that in my view, I really need to keep the most eye on because I probably won't ever have Kelly ankle dorsiflexion, but I don't want to have any less than I already have. So that's, that. that's for me, a big focus. And for Kelly, I'm going to answer it's nutrition, but he can say why. I just have a hard time eating enough. I have that same thing. I do you think it's because you're working so much and like you're like outwardly focused and it's hard to take the time or I don't know. I will say doing a lot of eating with him, he actually for such a large person, he can't eat very much in a single sitting. Like I can easily eat as much as him or more actually in a single sitting. And I think that's what kind of dogs him, right? He's someone who needs to eat more often. So it's like, you know, he may be like a three meal, two snacks kind of person. You're like a hummingbird. Then hummingbird. Yeah, he's like a he's a little bit like a hummingbird. God help us if we ever see a hummingbird that lo- looks like a thumb. <laughs> like a, the, jacked, it's thick, a jacked. Yeah, it's a prehistoric hummingbird. But I think you're right. I love that, and of course, I'm going to be using that one thousand times going forward. Katie, obviously, totally hummingbird. We'll link to. Uh, yeah. I am. A, I'm a hummingbird. We'll link. Well, tell us where people yeah. uh, who are on our podcast can find you and learn more about you and buy your book. Rethink your position. Nutritious movement, nutritious movement, everything, the website, the socials. Yeah. And then the book, hopefully everywhere, book, your local bookstore online. There's a quote on the book from some guy named Kelly Starrett on the back. And uh, I do want everyone to say that if you just read the book, you're changed. It's that simple. Oh, thanks. And I think that's really just one of the highest compliments I could give to something. You don't have to believe in it. It is like a virus, a positive virus that just, you know, upgrades your DNA and makes you just potentially think about the way you interact with your family in the world. It's really powerful. Like the like an earworm, like a song, like Muskrat Love that you can't get out of there once you read it. Thanks a lot for Muskrat Love. I'm stuck in the rest of the rest of the day. And same way, uh, can you tell my listeners where they can find you and your book? Sure. Uh, builttomove.com. We also have a 21 day free Built to Move challenge that anyone can sign up like for. A video and it's sort of guide. a companion course to the book. Um, and it's our way of trying to help people envision how they can actually fit these habits into their everyday time crunch busy lives, even for those people who do, do not identify as movers. I'm at Juliet Starrett on the socials and Kelly is at The Ready State on the socials. And my podcast is the Move Your DNA podcast, and your podcast is the Ready State. The Ready State podcast. All right. Thanks for uh, getting together. It was awesome. Thanks so much, Katie. That was so fun. Thanks, Katie. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Ready State podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.